I'm going to say something really controversial, okay? And for some of you, it might be even sacrilegious. Disney World is, in fact, not the happiest place on earth. Okay? If anything has shown that, uh, there's been dozens of police reports this uh, past year about what happens in the magical kingdom. And uh, you might not know this, but people are not magically transformed when they go into Disney World. As example, one police report in Disney World, a 23-year-old Chicago woman punched a park worker when she found out her fast pass couldn't be applied to the Tower of Terror. If you've been to Disney World, you know that Florida humidity doesn't stop when you go into the park. Kids don't stop crying once they're in Disney World. It can actually get worse. Hamburgers are $15. And I have just heard that Woody and Friends, you could usually, when they dress up and they go around Disney World, you could say, Andy's coming, and they would all fall down. Right? They don't do that anymore at Disney World, which is really depressing. So I'm just saying that Disney World is not the happiest place on earth. Now, I'm going to give you another controversial statement this morning. This is it. The church can be full of messiness, affliction, and suffering. Now, the first statement about Disney World, you can just push off to say, you know, Dan, he's just a Disney World hater, right? The second one is a little harder to ignore because it comes from the Apostle Paul in the Word of God, who was the one that started many of the first churches in Asia and Europe. But even in the midst of this suffering and affliction that is in the church, there is good news, and this is the main idea that we're going to gather from this passage this morning. So please, if you're going to pay attention, this is a good time to pay attention. Affliction and suffering can bring us comfort from the God of all comfort. And from that source, the ability to comfort and share in the affliction and suffering of others. So let's find out what God's Word says. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 1 through 11. If you have an ESV, I think it's on page 1079. It's also printed in your worship guide this morning. Let's pay attention as we look at God's Word. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, and Timothy, our brother, to the church of God that is in Corinth, with all the saints who are in the whole of Achaia. Grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our affliction, so that we may be able to comfort those who are in affliction with the comfort with which we ourselves are comforted by God. For as we share abundantly in Christ's sufferings, so through Christ we share abundantly in comfort too. If we are afflicted, it is for your comfort and salvation. And if we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which you experience when you patiently endure the same sufferings that we suffer. Our hope for you is unshaken, 
For we know that as you share in our sufferings, you will also share in our comfort. For we do not want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. For we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt that we had received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God, who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. You also must help us by prayer, so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. The word of the Lord. If you're just joining us, welcome. You come at a great time. We start a new book in the winter. In the winter time, in the spring, we go through the New Testament, either rotating between the Gospels and the Epistles. And in the summertime, we go through wisdom literature or law or apocalyptic literature. And in the fall, we go through the Old Testament, either prophetic or narrative. So there's all these genres in the Bible that give us so many great facets of God's great story of salvation for his people. So this winter and this spring, we are going to go through the epistle to the church in Corinth, the second one. And here it is written, there's 21 of these epistles if you didn't know, and the majority of them are written by Paul. Paul is an apostle, meaning he has been directed by Christ himself to be a messenger of the gospel, like the 12. He is also one of them. In this sense that he has been called by Christ to give this message. If we don't know anything about Paul's background, I'll give you just a little bit. Again, a former high-ranking Jewish teacher who used to imprison and kill Christians. And then encountered Christ, converted to Christianity, and given the message to give the gospel to non-Jews, Gentiles. And he helped plant some of the first churches in Asia Minor and in Europe. We have gone through some of Paul's letter before. We've done it in a very purposeful and intentional way, chronologically. His first letter was to the region of Galatia, which is Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey. In 48 AD, he wrote that. Then he wrote 1st and 2nd Thessalonians to the church in Thessalonica, which is in modern-day Greece, in 49 through 51 AD. These are churches he started planting in Asia Minor, in Thessalonica. But then on his second missionary journey, Paul spent the majority of his time in one location, in Corinth. Actually, a year and a half there. Corinth, again, modern-day Greece, in southern Greece. It was the third largest city in the Roman Empire at that time. They called it the crossroads of Greece, a port city where many former slaves came to settle, immigrants through all the, throughout all the Mediterranean. They had a theater there that held 18,000 people, a concert hall, athletic games. It was a happening place, and it was growing. It made sense that Paul wanted to spend time there in the city where a message could go out throughout the Roman Empire. And there he planted a church, a church with Jews and Gentiles, slave and free, rich and poor. 
Now we can easily romanticize all these people coming together, but it was hard work. It was a work of God that it held together at all. And we get to learn about the complicated history of this church in this letter. Let me give you some background about it again. Here it is. After leading Corinth and going to Ephesus, after his year and a half there, Paul has two messengers that he shares the gospel with Timothy and Titus that are going back and forth to Corinth to hear what's going on. And that's what happens. Timothy and Titus tell Paul what's happening. And we have two letters in response to what has happened in Corinth that he's given back to the people. Actually, 1 Corinthians mentions a previous letter that there was sexual immorality going in the church and it was allowed in the church. And Paul is trying to get them to see you can't allow this to happen. And there was actually a previous letter than 1 Corinthians. But then, after that, a letter comes to Paul from the church in Corinth and they're asking some questions about food sacrifice to idols, speaking in tongues, sexual conduct. And then Paul responds with what we've gone through already as the church. We went through 1 Corinthians. But then, after this letter is sent, more bad word comes back to Paul that these people are allowing sin continuously in Corinth and not separating. So what Paul does, and it's mentioned here in 2 Corinthians, we'll get it to, to it next week, is that Paul gives another visit to Corinth. And this visit is called the painful visit. And it does not go well. And then, after Paul leaves, he writes a severe letter that's mentioned in 2 Corinthians after his visit. A letter that we don't have. Then, after this letter is getting, given, he hears from Titus some good news. That after the people in Corinth had received this severe letter, they had taken action against the sin in the church. This was good news. But he also hears from Titus some bad news. The church is still frustrated with Paul about his travel plans. The church has lapsed in its collection of offerings for the church in Jerusalem and other churches throughout the Roman Empire. False apostles have infiltrated the church. And after hearing this news, Paul writes 2 Corinthians, which we will go through this winter and this spring. Talk about a complicated and difficult relationship. Here are four letters of correspondence. We only have two. We don't even have the severe one. Paul has visited this church twice, stayed with them a year and a half. He has gotten personal tax from this church about his ministry. You would think he would just give up on these people. And on top of that, Paul has dealt with being lashed 40 times, imprisoned, beaten with rods, shipwrecked, anxiety unto death, hunger, and thirst. But he still works with them. He sticks by them, and in fact, on his third missionary journey, he goes back again after this letter and stays with them for a few months. And what does he do when he stays with them? He writes probably one of the greatest letters, one of the greatest theological treaties ever, 
the book of Romans. Paul has a lot invested in this church. And here, when we get into 2 Corinthians, we are going to be dropped into the middle of this complex relationship. And it can feel at times, as we read this letter, like we're getting dropped into the middle of a, of a story. And that makes sense, because we are about this relationship between Paul and these people. Many people call 2 Corinthians the most emotional of his letters. Don't get me wrong. Like all the epistles, there's great logic, theological structure. That's the way the epistles are written. But it's different than reading Romans when you read 2 Corinthians. Paul has a relationship that is deep and complicated with these people. If I had to sum up 2 Corinthians, I would sum it up in this way. It's Paul defending his ministry, but more than that, Paul is defending the nature of ministry within the age of Christ. Paul is defending the nature of ministry that we are in right now in the age of Christ. So it is no surprise that after the greeting, Paul starts the letter in such a way, suffering and affliction. Because there is complex and difficult issues and relationships faced by both Paul and this church. So for us today that think, oh, it's not supposed to be messy. The church is supposed to be fine. I'm not supposed to suffer. There's not supposed to be affliction. This letter teaches us it's really not the most magical place on earth. Now I'm going to give you three principles as we go through this letter, verses 3 through 11. Here they are. Suffering and affliction are not definitive signs of God's disapproval. Suffering and affliction are not definitive signs of God's disapproval. Number two, suffering and affliction allow us to know the character of God as comforter. Suffering and affliction allow us to know the character of God as comforter. Number three, suffering and affliction can help us bring comfort to others. Suffering and affliction can help us bring comfort to others. So let's look, shall we? Specifically, verses 3 through 11. So after any greeting in the epistle, Paul really gets right to the point. We call that kind of the top and tail, that at the beginning, at the end of his epistles, after the greetings, we're getting kind of a picture of what this letter is going to be about. And we see after this greeting, Paul is talking about affliction and suffering. In fact, in verse 8, it's so bad that we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Paul does not minimize the suffering that he has experienced. In fact, he doubles down on the affliction and suffering he's done. 
His weaknesses, the conflicts, the struggles, the close-to-death experience, which he probably experienced in Ephesus when there was a riot there and people were trying to kill him, and also his fellow teachers. It begs the question that the people in Corinth were asking that Paul addresses right away. Here is what is in their mind, these people in Corinth. Should a messenger of the gospel, such an important figure like Paul, face such suffering? Because what they saw, that there were some messengers of the Christian message, which we'll see later were called the super apostles, that they, when they came and taught, they were making money. They had major letters of recommendation. They were profiting from the message of the gospel. They were doing just fine. But Paul was not. Is he just experiencing God's disapproval? Is he preaching a false message? Why should he be experiencing suffering and affliction? As we see, Paul will continually say, 2 Corinthians will continually say, The suffering and affliction that Paul and followers of Christ go through shows that God works through weakness. God shows his power not through us, but through him. And in our weaknesses, it shows his power even when we do not have power, when we are weak, suffering, and have affliction. I want to make a few caveats here about this principle, okay? One is we can think that this is a license that we should seek out suffering and affliction. That somehow some people think the intrinsic message of the gospel and Christianity is suffering and affliction. That is actually good, right? No. Suffering and affliction is not the way it's supposed to be. We're not Stoics. The Stoics at that time used to think pain was just to be just indifferent to it. No, as Christians we say pain is not good. It's not the way it's supposed to be. There's also another caveat I need to say. Just because you follow after Christ doesn't mean you're going to face major affliction and suffering. Some of us might not. And just because you are facing suffering and pain doesn't mean that you're following after Christ. So those caveats need to be said as we think about affliction and suffering. But here's the thing. In our world, in our age, we try as much as we can to minimize affliction and suffering. But the Christian worldview does not minimize it. It acknowledges that we live in a world that's broken, that we don't have to run from it, we don't have to minimize it, it's the way it is. I do find it very intriguing. Jesus still seems to have a good rap in our culture, right? People say we should be like Jesus, right? We should follow Jesus, I would like to be like him right? If Jesus 
is living the righteous life, the good life, the way that we should live. What did he experience? He experienced suffering and affliction. Why is it then we are surprised if we live lives of righteousness, live lives like Christ, that we too will face suffering and affliction? Why are we surprised? It's because we live in an age that says, do what feels good. So long as you are happy, live your best life now. I I think I've heard that from a Christian. But if we actually live lives of Christ, we should not be surprised that we suffer and we're afflicted. One of my favorite pastors who I really like, Ken Hughes, he used to pastor a church in Wheaton, Wheaton College Church. And Ken can sometimes say things that I can't because I'm worried that I might get in trouble saying it. So I'll say his words rather than mine. So maybe you feel bad to him and rather than to me. But he said something that was very convicting about this book. If you are the type of Christian who seeks your own comfort and tranquility so that on one hand you resist the excesses of sin, but on the other you will not discomfort yourself for the gospel and the body of Christ. If you seek only an untroubled life, this text is not for you. Do you want it to be for you? Do you want to listen to it? I would hope you would. Because it's not affliction and suffering that dominates this passage. No, there is another word that upholds this passage greater than affliction and suffering. It's a word in Greek, parakaleo. So look with me, shall we? Look right there at the text. Verses 3 through 7. Maybe you can answer it for me. What word do you see used over and over again in verses 3 through 7? Oh, good. Someone said something out loud. That's good. Yeah, good job. Whoever did that, I'll throw a treat to you. Good job. Yes. Comfort. Ten times. In five verses, uses a noun as a verb. One-third of all the uses of this word in the New Testament is found in these five verses. Parakaleo, comfort. It permeates this passage. And we see at the very beginning, the source of all comfort is God. God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Rarely is the word used in the Old Testament, but we actually read it earlier today from Isaiah chapter 40 as our assurance of pardon. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. And I think Paul is borrowing from Isaiah 40 through 55. If you don't know, that section of the Bible is called the section of the suffering servant. It talks about this servant that is 
suffers and faces persecution and suffering for our salvation. And Paul rightly shows that this is a foreshadowing to Christ, that he is the suffering servant. That this servant suffered so that we would be comforted. This servant suffered so we would have salvation. God has shown his comfort in Christ's sufferings that we might be comforted. That it does not come from ourselves, but it ultimately comes from God's plan of salvation. That is where comfort truly comes from. And it's not just little comfort. It's comfort that raises from the dead. Past delivers us now, present, and will deliver us future. In our suffering, we identify with the one who suffered a suffering that could truly comfort us in our affliction because it brings salvation. That is the gospel. Now the word parakaleo, many would argue, was co-opted by the Christians. The Greeks didn't use the word in that way. They used it more as exhortation or calling or admonition. There wasn't this confidence in Roman and Greek culture that there was this comfort that would come. For them, it was some kind of metaphysical hypothesis set under doubting that maybe one day they would be okay. One day they would be comforted. This is what one Greek philosopher said. Many wise men regard life as a punishment and the birth of man his greatest misfortune. There wasn't a lot of confident comfort used in the Roman culture. Parakaleo wasn't a word that they sought for comfort. But it seems Paul is using it for true confidence in comfort. Surely, we do not have this kind of metaphysical hypothesis or these words that just kind of sit there under doubt of comfort. We don't do the same in our age, do we? How about this thing I hear over and over again in our culture? Maybe you say it yourself. This too shall pass. Think on that. Will it? Will it pass? I sure thought COVID was going to pass over a little while. It just keeps over and over and over again. We hear this. Will it one day pass? Well, I guess if you think all there is is within the natural world, within the imminent frame, that's all there is is the natural world, then yes, it one day will pass because you will die and there will be nothing more. You will feel nothing more. It will be it. So what is the comfort that we give? Numb your pain, power through, think warm thoughts. Is that true comfort? Here is what Paul is saying to these people. There is a true source of comfort, God himself, that had a plan for salvation and did it. 
He took our, suf- our suffering so that we could be truly comforted in confidence. This isn't some fantasy. This is historical reality. Christ died. Christ resurrected. There is confidence here. There is no ambiguity. There is no maybe you'll be comforted. No, there is comfort. Do you believe the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ is the source of all comfort? Do you believe that? Or is the source of comfort the weekend? The cabin? Winning a volleyball tournament? Exercise? Money? That Aaron Rodgers will come back next year? Too soon? Do you believe in the confidence that we have that God has given us true comfort that we can believe in and trust in in history that he sent his son that faced the suffering and affliction of this world and he took it upon himself that he died upon the cross and rose from the dead that we know that suffering and affliction has been defeated. It's happened. And here's the thing. The comfort doesn't just stay with us. It overflows to others. And we see that in this passage. When we are afflicted, we can then comfort others. And it's just back and forth for mutual encouragement. The Corinthians, they face suffering and affliction. Conflict among friends and relatives Troubles for living the gospel out in a very pagan culture where they found the Christian morals backwards, their life weird. You can imagine the kind of conversations they had and how it would have been hard and difficult. But Paul is having them look towards him. And it may have been hard for them, but look how serious it was for Paul. And we see through Paul's hunger and troubles and near-death experiences how much Paul has gone through so that the good news of the gospel would be, go forward, so that they would be comforted by the good news because of what he has been afflicted and what he has suffered with. And that seeing what Paul has faced so that they could receive the good news of comfort, that they would point even further forward to what Christ had done through his suffering and his affliction so that Paul is comforted and so they are comforted and then they can comfort each other through the source of all comfort, God himself through his son, Jesus Christ. In 2015, Matthew Teague, a writer, a journalist, wrote an article in Esquire magazine. It became a very, very popular article. A movie was made about it. And the article was about the death 
of his wife, who was just 34 years old. And they had two young girls. This is what he said in the article in Esquire. We don't tell each other the truth about dying as a people. Not real dying. Real dying, regular and mundane dying, is so hard and so ugly that it becomes the worst thing of all. It's grotesque. It's undignified. No one ever told me the truth about it. Not once. When it happened to my beloved, I lost my footing in more than one way. The title of his article was this, The Friend, Love is Not a Big Enough Word. And the article really wasn't primarily about the death of his wife. Instead, it, it was about his wife's friend who became his friend, Dane. Dane stayed with the family for a year plus. He gave up all his vacation time, lost his job, while Matthew's wife went through hospice and death. Here's the thing. Matthew and his wife had helped Dane when he was going through serious depression and contemplating suicide, comforting him in his low points. Then, in Matthew and his wife's affliction, Dane came and lived with them and comforted them. Here's what the article doesn't share, what the movie does not share. Matthew and Dane loved Jesus. They loved Jesus. And they shared in the suffering and affliction of life because they knew the comfort that came from Christ. And it allowed them to have the comfort for one another because they knew the one that took the sting out of it in the brokenness and ugliness of this world. Think about it. Think about Paul writing this church that is questioning him, that he's invested in, that he's done so much with. And this is what he gives them. He has faced suffering and affliction from them. But he tells them, comfort, comfort. Where does that come from? From the source of all comfort. God himself. Maybe the greatest place on earth isn't where we put on happy faces, cordially talk to each other, ride on rides, eat great food, but instead it's a place where we share in each other's sufferings. Then then we might share in the comfort that comes from the one that suffered ultimately for us. I think that's the greatest place on earth. That's who Paul thinks the greatest place on earth is, even in all its ugliness. The church, 